0: The text for the sermon this afternoon is the Word of God as we have it summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 41. Lord's Day 41 is about the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment reads as follows, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. Now we confess in Lord's Day 41, What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, We live in a fallen and sinful world, and the effect of sin reaches into every domain of our lives. Our relationships with other people are affected by sin and weakness. Our interaction with those in authority are tainted with attitudes that are not pleasing to the Lord. Our speaking about others is often not a building but undermines them in various ways. Our service of the Lord is not what it should be, and our lives are so often lacking in holiness and dedication to Him alone. We are faced with suffering and death in ourselves or among those whom we cherish. We are confronted by dishonesty and problems at work or in our families or whatever situation we might be in. The effect of sin is certainly also very real and present in our lives as men and women. In the most personal aspect of our identity as male and female, one of the great challenges of our culture and time and history is that of keeping ourselves pure and holy before God when it comes to matters of sexuality. The world in which we live glorifies sex. It has become one of the chief false gods of our time. The world proclaims to young people that casual sex with whoever may be willing is the way to live. Sexual relations are regarded as everyone's right to have whenever they please. The view that sexual relations would only be for marriage is regarded as hopelessly outdated and old-fashioned in today's culture. You need to just follow your feelings and engage in your passions and lusts however you please as long as you don't hurt anyone. That is the mainstream view of our culture and it is promoted everywhere we look on billboards, in magazines, on TV and on the Internet. Sexual relations are regarded as something that you need, just like you need food and drink. It is an appetite and a craving which must be satisfied. The whole notion of self-control and abstinence from sexual relations is mocked by many. Although it is true that there are some groups that are advocating abstinence and remaining a virgin, because they see the dangers of casual sex they remain a minority and certainly do not get the airtime of the more popular view. The message of our time is you need to satisfy your passions now and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It is your right and very important for your well-being. Much is made about the repercussions of repressing sexual desires, how this is supposed to cause all kinds of issues and difficulties in one's life. It is in this kind of culture that the word of the Lord comes to us in the seventh commandment. Let us hear what the Lord tells us about this area of life as we confess it in Lord's Day 41, especially in light of 1 Corinthians 7. I proclaim to you God's Word under the following theme. Live in a holy and disciplined way in the place in life that God has given you. Do this both first within holy marriage and second outside of holy marriage. The culture in which the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church at Corinth was very similar to our own. Greek society at that time was full of sexual immorality. It was sanctioned by the official religion of the day and various gods and goddesses were involved in promoting an immoral lifestyle. The believers in Corinth had not fully realized the implications of belonging to Jesus Christ their Saviour. They needed to be taught that their former way of life, of sexual immorality, was unacceptable before God and dishonoring to their Lord. At the end of chapter 6 we can read how Paul had to exhort the people in Corinth not to unite with a prostitute. This was the so-called life of freedom of the people of Corinth. They were used to indulging in this kind of behavior and did not think much of it. Paul wakes them up from their deadly slumber by telling them that they now belong to Jesus Christ alone. That the Holy Spirit dwells in their body. That they are no longer their own, able to do with their bodies as they please. God Himself dwells in them through His Spirit. How can they then act in a sinful way by uniting with prostitutes? They need to realize that God has created them to live according to His will in all of life, also in the matters that are the most personal, the use of our own body. Jesus Christ is a complete Savior who has delivered them body and soul. We are reminded of what we confess in Lord's Day 1, that we will belong with body and soul to our faithful Savior. This has implications for how we live now, as those who have been saved by Christ's blood. Since He has rescued us from sin and transgression, we need to live a new life, free from the bondage and slavery to sin and now in chapter 7 the Apostle Paul applies the reality of the fact that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in a remarkable and unexpected way In verse 1 he writes now concerning the matters about which you wrote it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman This is a word that is good for us to hear also in our oversexed culture, just like the culture of the time of the Apostle Paul. What is regarded as so necessary and to be desired above everything else is something that is not necessary according to Scripture. In fact, it is a good option not to have sexual relations. Sex must never become the end-all and be-all of our life. We have been bought by Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. This means that we have so much to look forward to, also life eternal with God, wherein there will be no sexual relations at all. In contrast to the world's glorification of unrestricted and free sex, God's word reminds us to have a healthy perspective on sexual relations. It is not a must-have. It is not something that everyone needs in order to be a complete person. It is something you can do without. It is good not to have sexual relations. Verse 1 is a general comment that Paul makes which will be worked out further when he speaks about those who are unmarried but now in the verses two and following Paul goes on to speak about those who are married before we look at those verses it is it needs to be clear that Paul does not disparage marriage or mean to give the impression that marriage is something that can merely be tolerated in Ephesians 5 Paul praises marriage very highly and says that it reflects the relation between Christ and his Church. The unity of husband and wife is regarded as a profound mystery which reflects Christ and the Church. The husband is exhorted to love his wife just like Christ loves the Church. And the wife is exhorted to submit to her husband as to the Lord. And this all needs to happen in the overall context of us all as members of Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We think also of what Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 4 where he speaks against those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Also sexual relations have been created by God to be received with thanksgiving, to be enjoyed in the marriage relationship. So it is clear that Paul values marriage very highly He knows that it is a gift of God himself and has been instituted in paradise. But at the same time, we need to realize that sexual relations should not be the driving force of our life. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul applies this basic message to both those who are married and to those who are unmarried. If you are married, then you should have sexual relations with your spouse. This is what is meant by verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. These conjugal rights or marital duty is something that is reciprocal. It applies to the husband just as much as to the wife. It shows that there must be a relationship of mutual love and enjoyment of each other. God did not institute marriage simply so that two people could live under the same roof and beget children but for the rest live separate lives or at odds with one another. No, there must be a willingness to truly live for one another's best interest. Marriage is all about giving of oneself for the other. This comes out clearly in verse 4 as well. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now when you consider these words... It seems like we have a deadlock situation. The wife has authority over the husband's body, but the husband has authority over the wife's body. So what's going to happen? It seems like an impossible situation. Any authoritative move that is made could be countered by the authority of the other. Paul describes the situation between husband and wife In this way, to emphasize how important and critical love is. It is only love that can break this deadlock of mutual authority. Love wants to give to the other. Love delights in making the other person happy. Love breaks through all resistance and breaks down all exercising of authority used for selfish purposes. When husband and wife truly love each other, then they will not set up barriers for each other and remain cold and indifferent to one another, also when it comes to sexual relations. Rather, they will learn to be there for one another as much as they can and also understand the situation of the other and show love and concern when the time is not right for a coming together in the fullest expression of love. In verse 5, Paul explains that periods of sexual abstinence within marriage should only be by agreement between both husband and wife and for a brief period. There may have been some among the Corinthian believers who regarded sexual relations as inherently sinful and therefore sought to forbid them altogether. But this is certainly not what the Lord teaches here. Periods of abstinence can be good for refocusing on the special things of the Lord, like prayer and fasting. Sexual abstinence would also be a form of fasting when it is done with the purpose of being able to read scripture and pray together. As married couples, we must be careful that we live a holy and disciplined life before the Lord. Everything that we do within our marriage needs to be motivated by love and the well-being of our husband or wife. God has created and given sexual relations to be used and enjoyed within marriage, but that does not mean that God gives us a license for lust and setting sex up as a false god, also not within marriage. As we confess in the Catechism, God calls us to live chaste and disciplined lives and we must hate all unchastity from the heart. In the second half of verse 5 we read, But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. To understand this we need to remind ourselves of the situation of the Corinthian congregation. Most couples in that congregation would have become married before becoming Christian and would have being used to a sexually immoral lifestyle. The men would visit prostitutes and not think much of it. So Paul is concerned that if there is too long a period of abstinence between husband and wife, the husband will be tempted to go elsewhere. The situation may be somewhat different in its externals in our time, but the temptations are fundamentally the same. We need to be careful as married Christian couples that we stay close to each other emotionally, spiritually and physically. If we start to drift apart in any of these ways then we are playing with fire and the potential for grievous temptation is just around the corner. There is never any excuse for sexual sin of any kind whether it be turning to pornography or seeking satisfaction in the wrong places. But if we are not giving toward one another as husband and wife and not mindful of each other's needs, then we really need to refocus in our marriage and come together again as the Lord instructs us here. The marriage relationship is certainly much more than only a means for having legitimate sexual relations, but it is in the way in which the Lord designed us to show our love for one another in the most complete way. And therefore our sexuality must be used in that way, in that context, so that our marriage will be strengthened and invigorated according to the means God has provided in the world in which we live there is so much temptation to sexual sin. We are constantly bombarded with messages not to be satisfied with the spouse we have, to look at others lustfully, to be allured by the temptations of this world. The problem is that we have a heart that by nature wants to sin against the seventh commandment. Ultimately we need to recognize that it is a spiritual battle, a spiritual struggle, a war that we are engaged in to be holy and pure in this sinful world with its many temptations. The evil one knows where our weak spots are and in our time with access to pornography and sexual sin is so easy by the internet. Let us be very careful to guard against these temptations and make ourselves accountable also in how we use the internet and be honest and open about our struggles so that we might grow in holiness and be of help to one another in these things. None of us are immune from temptation and therefore we need to always be watchful, recognize the grievous character of sexual sin how it can destroy lives and marriages. Let us instead seek to honor the Lord in how we live with our spouse and encourage one another to exalt in the Lord our God rather than in false gods and goddesses who only bring more misery and bondage into our lives. May we as parents warn our children about the dangers of sexual sin and speak about the reality of temptation and equip them to fight against it by showing to them the blessings of serving the Lord and living lives of discipline and self-control for the exhortation to live holy and disciplined lives not only comes to those within holy marriage but also to those outside of holy marriage and so we come to the second point. In much of the rest of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks to those who are unmarried. We do well to remind ourselves of the overall context. In contrast to the over culture of then and now, Paul brings the message that it is good not to have sexual relations. You do not need them to live a fulfilled life. In verse 8, he says to the widows and the unmarried that it is good for them to remain single as I am. The exact meaning of verse 9 has been debated quite a bit. It is important to note that the verb cannot control themselves is better translated are not controlling themselves. Paul is speaking here about premarital sex, about fornication, those who are visiting prostitutes and engaging in sexual activities without being married. If that is how they are living, and they should stop that activity and either get married or remain single in a holy manner. Verse 9 should not be interpreted to mean that marriage is the place where one can live out one's lustful passions. If one has a difficulty with lust then this will remain a difficulty within marriage as well. The only solution to sexual sin is to repent and live a holy, chaste, and disciplined life before the Lord. The only solution to sexual temptation is to turn to the Lord and realize that He needs to be the Lord of your life, not the false God of sex. The one who struggles with sexual temptation needs to realize that he has a spiritual problem. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ who is able to bring healing and restoration through the power of his Holy Spirit. In verse 7, Paul speaks about the gift that each person has received from God. Some have interpreted this gift to mean a special gift of sexual abstinence or perhaps of a lower sexual desire than the rest of men. The thinking is then that those who are single have received a special talent from the Lord which helps them to remain single and to live holy, disciplined lives. But Paul is not speaking in verse 7 about the special talent that some people have. Life experience also testifies against this. Rather, the gift that Paul is speaking about is the state in life which the Lord has given to us. And this concept is repeated throughout the whole chapter. We have all received our own gift from God. The one has this gift and the other that. The one has received marriage and the other has received the gift of being single. Both are gifts from God. Both are good things. The one should not be set above the other. If anything, Paul prefers the single state because that enables him to be free from worrying about his wife and other earthly concerns, time which he can then use for the special work of the Lord instead. But when Paul says this, then he does not mean to disparage marriage but rather to put everything in the right perspective, the perspective that puts the Lord first and foremost in our lives. What counts in life is, not, is whether or not we serve the Lord and honour Him in all that we do. Whether we are single or married is not what is important. In our Canary Farm circles, it seems that this chapter of Scripture does not always receive its due. Those who are single can often be made to feel that they are missing a lot with not being married, and that everything must be done on their behalf to secure a spouse for them. But such thinking does not agree with what we read here, that it is good to remain single. And in verse 38, that the one who does not marry does even better. Paul says this because of the context which speaks of being able to have an undivided devotion to the Lord when one is not married. There are possibilities that one has as a single person which are not available to the one who is married. The bottom line is that our outward status of being married or single is not the most important and we should not live as though it is. This is because the time is short and the Lord calls us to live for Him in the short time that we have in this life. We must be content in the place which the Lord has given us. This comes up time and again throughout this passage. For example, in verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. And further, in verse 19, that keeping God's commands is what counts. Living a sober Disciplined and holy life is what is pleasing to the Lord. When we do each day what He commands then everything else in life will fall into place. Our chief aim in life must not be to improve our status in life according to worldly standards or to be constantly preoccupied in a dissatisfied way with our lot in life. Our position in life is from the Lord and directed by His divine providence. Nothing happens by chance, certainly also not whether we are married or single. This gives us peace and security in this life. Let us in all circumstances of life also if we are single and struggle with that find our rest and contentment in the Lord not in the possibility of mister or miss Wright coming on the scene when we find our strength in the Lord then he will also help us with every temptation that comes our way brothers and sisters the time is short And therefore, as Paul writes in verse 31 and the New International Version, let us use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Our life is all about serving the Lord. The rest are details We need to realize that more and more as we go through life. That is what growing in faith is all about. For many in the world, sex and marriage are the chief ends of life. Marriage and sexual relations are certainly wonderful gifts of God. But let us never become so engrossed in them that we forget the giver of these gifts. And let us never forget that all these things are passing away. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more marriage, for it will belong to the things that have passed away. The Lord Jesus Christ himself was never married, and no one can say that he did not live a complete life. For he is the only one who ever lived a perfect life as God intended it to be lived. We may look forward to an eternity of dwelling with him and our Heavenly Father. There will be no marriage there as we know it now. But instead there will be something much more wonderful and beautiful. The marriage between the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. How wonderful that wedding feast will be. A feast in which we can all participate, whether married or single now. It will not matter then at all, and therefore should not matter now either. For we are all part of the same family of God and are going to the same destination, the heavenly Jerusalem. May we in our lives now live in holiness and self-control, preparing ourselves for the life to come, rejoicing in God's countless gifts of love. Amen. Let us now sing together hymn 65, all four stanzas.